0: We are amazed, Father, at your work of grace in the Apostle Paul. From one who was the enemy of the gospel, a persecutor of your children, to one whose whole life is wrapped up in the gospel. We would pray that you'd make these words to be more than words to us. We pray you'd take them and transform us, change our attitudes and our affections and our orientation to conform with this wonderful work of grace that you do in every Christian and we see exemplified in this apostle. Take your word, bless your people today. We'd ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. What is hard to preach chapter nine, I must say, because you are, um, well, chapter eight as well, but you are certainly haunted by feelings of hypocrisy throughout. I see these amazing statements by the Apostle Paul. All, every, he's given over, his whole heart is tangled up in the gospel. You're kind of going, hmm, Lord, can I preach this as fully as I need? Help me not to pull punches to make uh, excuses for your own shortcomings or lacks. That we wouldn't, you know, preach this passage with less than the full vigor it deserves and the emphasis it deserves because it's it's just the the heart of of the Apostle, captivated by the gospel. We know that in this book, of course, the Apostle is responding to questions which were sent him in a letter from the Corinthians, okay? And of course, chapter 8 begins with a question about the appropriateness of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Um, And of course, Paul again and again takes the Corinthians deeper, okay? They asserted knowledge, and he came back and said, love is superior to knowledge, and that that's really to be valued as a relationship with God, not mere knowledge, they asserted that eating meat in the temple doesn't matter uh, because the God to whom it's offered is merely stone. And Paul again took him deeper. He said, "You know what?" He emphasized their relationship. He said, "You exist for the Father. You exist for the Son." We, they talked, uh, in, in, as it were, in contempt of the weaker brother, and Paul said, "No." Takes them deeper again. Says, "No. This brother's conscience is crucial." You're not to violate your brother's conscience. Um, It's much more than eating food that's at stake here. It's the ruination, the perishing of the weaker brother's uh, soul. And you can see that at the end of uh, chapter 8. So Paul concludes there, makes this radical statement. I'll never eat meat again if it makes a brother stumble. Then um, Paul begins chapter 9, which is the chapter we're taking up today to some extent. And again, he seems to be taking up two subjects, ostensibly... He seems to be defending against an attack on his apostleship. Someone said, hey, you're not really an apostle. And they attacked him, as you may recall, on three grounds. One was he wasn't part of the original 12. You can see that um, uh, in verse 1. Have I not seen our Lord Jesus? The idea was you didn't really see him. You didn't participate like all the other apostles did. They attacked him as to whether uh, he, he worked for a living. They're saying all the other apostles don't work for a living, but you do. Uh, and so... You know, that might show you really don't have much authority. And then they also, of course, attacked, we'll see, his Jewishness. They're saying, you know, you you keep switching around, you're with the Gentiles, you're with the Jews. How can that, that's so inconsistent, how can you be an apostle? And um, so there was, uh, ostensibly, that's what chapter 9 begins with, is that's the thing on the exterior. But as we'll see, uh, Paul must feel that the Corinthians, and all of us, uh, needed more instruction in, uh, the Christian's attitude toward his rights and his freedoms. And so, Paul, in his discussion, we'll see he works his way around again to the implications of the gospel. And we'll see, as you imagine, that really, with whatever topic Paul takes up, he eventually comes back to the gospel and its impact on his life and the demands it's had for him. So, um, Paul, then, um, we want to start with verse, um, let's see, verse. Nineteen. Okay, so. Notice verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And notice how this verse kind of harkens back to uh, verse 1 of this chapter. He says in verse 1, I am free. Am I not free? And here Paul is saying, though I am free from all. And then you have this thought of, I've made myself a servant to all, which again even goes back a verse further, back to the end of uh, 8, where Paul says, um, I, you know, never, I, I will never eat meat again if it caused someone to stumble, the idea that, that I will control my actions by how it impacts someone else. So we're going to see that the gospel so captivates the Christian. And here's our theme for today that he or she lays down his freedoms and lives for the gospel's success. Again, the gospel so captivates the Christian that he or she lays down their freedoms and lives for its success. And our first point today is, is the Christian ought to be about winning souls. Notice then, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Okay. Let's look first at the fact that this directive is not just to gospel ministers. If you recall, and I wouldn't believe you didn't because I didn't, uh, my points last time preached were about the the glory of the gospel minister being able to forego his rights and the right of the gospel minister to support. But you notice this time I think that this passage is appropriate to all Christians. That is to say that this passage is not merely limited to those who preach the gospel, not merely limited to those who are full-time ministry, but to all of us, all of us are called and must follow Paul's example to win others to Christ. Paul is using his life in, this, in these chapters as, as an example, as a pattern for the Corinthians. He's saying to them, live as I live. Yield your rights as I yield my rights. Value your brother's consciences as I value your brother's and sister's consciences. Boast in glory in the gospel as I glory in the Lord. It's interesting too. If you turn ahead one chapter, chapter ten, verse thirty-two, you see that Paul gives this same command clearly to the entire church. I think it's a little less, a little, a little more general. But in verse, let's start with verse thirty-one. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And here's, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many that they may be saved. So here's Paul saying, really giving that command to the whole church. I want everyone to take up this command to not give offense that many may be saved. So this is a command Paul's giving to all of us. And of course, this is not something new to this this epistle. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? Um, Psalm, I mean, Proverbs 1130. The fruit of the righteous is the tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. So, Again, speaking to myself, speaking to all of us, we need not to resist Paul's appeal. This is a call. It's an example to all of us. And so we need to let Paul's life and priorities radically reorient ours and mine. We would say with him, at, as you can see at the end of at verse uh, 23, I do all for the sake of the gospel. Or I've made myself a slave to all. That's really what Paul is calling every Christian to. So this directive is not only to Christian, to gospel ministers. Next point is the winning of souls means seeing that they are saved from wrath, brought to heaven to the glory of Christ. The winning of souls means that we're seeing that people are saved, that they're saved from wrath, they're brought to heaven, and all that to the glory of the gospel. Paul's purpose here, and again looking back at verse 19, is to win more of them. What does it mean to win people? The verb for win has the idea of gaining, making a profit, taking an advantage, gaining an advantage, okay? And um, it's famous, we, we know this word well, it's famously used in Philippians. Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the same word, right? he gains Christ. Philippians 3.8, Indeed I count everything loss, for the, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. There's that word again. Same word as Paul used here. This word of, of gain. But notice in Philippians, Paul is winning or gaining Christ. Here in this chapter, in 1 Corinthians nine, Paul is the one doing the winning or the gaining. And it's interesting if we, if we another place this word is used. Of course, is in First Peter chapter three where it says that um, likewise wives, you submit your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. So there's that same idea. Now there's another example of someone who's to be gained by another person, as opposed to Paul gaining Christ. So what is the meaning here? Well, I suggest there's three, three meanings that Paul has in mind that come out of this text. One is, it's pretty clear, that to win people needs means to save them from the wrath of God. If you look at verse uh, 22b, you'll see he says, To the weak I've become weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So it's pretty plain. Paul is using save in parallel to this idea of winning people. So that's one, one clear meaning that we can inject to this word win. Save from what? What are we saving people from? Well, of course, we know from Romans... 5 9, therefore, since we've been now justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Paul says it explicitly, expressly. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. There's the idea of it's folly to those who are perishing, there's a contrast as opposed to those who are being saved. So to be saved means to be saved from God's wrath, to be saved from, from perishing. So when Paul says we want to win people, we're trying to see that they avoid God's wrath and hell. To win people also means to advantage them, though. Okay, That is, people, when they're won, are not only saved from wrath, but they're brought into a place of immeasurable blessing. They're brought to the love of Christ, to heaven, to eternal life. First, um, 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, We are treated as imposters and yet are true, and I'm skipping some words here, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Then he says, As poor, yet making many rich. You see, in the ministry of the gospel, when people are one to Christ, they're made rich, they're advantaged, they're profited because they have an interest in heaven. They realize immense gain, eternal gain. So, Winning people means to save them from the wrath of God. It means to advantage them. It also has the idea of of making much of the gospel. That's a third facet of this word. Um, Note that when Paul um, sees people become Christians, usually he uses the word save. If you look off the book of Romans, many times his epistles, Thessalonians, he used the word save many times. But here he chooses to use a different word. That is this word gain. Notice in the context of this verse, and I'm looking particularly um, at verse 18. What is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge. So Paul, in our, in our, in our, in our previous uh, passage here, Paul, if you recall, had said, you know what, my, I'm, I'm compelled to preach. I have to preach. That's a charge God laid upon me. But I can offer it. But what is my reward and what is my blessing, my boast, is I can live out the freeness of the gospel in Christ. In other words, Jesus freely gave, and I can do that. I can freely give my gospel preaching to you. And so that was was Paul's boast. And he said, you know, I'd rather die than lose the opportunity to, to, to imitate, to be an exemplar of Christ in freely giving out the gospel. So notice here in this passage then, Paul has said, and look at verse 18... What's my payment? That word is mistrust. It has any reward or payment. What am I getting paid? Well, I'm foregoing payment because my reward is, is to be able to preach the gospel freely. But here he says, in this verse, in verse 19, he's saying that I may, he's kind of saying that, that the gospel, I gave the gospel without charge, but now it is more profitable. You see what I'm saying because I gave without charge, now the gospel has profit. There's kind of a, a comparison there. It gives more profit to the gospel. So there's a sense in which when we win people, we, we are making much of the gospel. He's gaining a profit. So he's saying before, no charge, but now because I did that, there's much charge, there's much profit, there's much glory to the gospel. Uh, he's showing how wonderful and valuable and worthy and efficacious in transforming the gospel is, and especially the Lord Jesus who accomplished it all. So to make... To win souls is to make much of the gospel is the third thing that happens when we win souls. And again, to make much of the name of Jesus is the most compelling missionary motive. I don't know if you remember um, uh, in 3 John, which is a short little epistle. Most of us don't visit it very often. But it says, uh, John writes, For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. He's saying these missionaries who were dealt with in the, in the book of 3 John went out just for this, the glory of Christ and uh, in Romans 1 Paul says that we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations so when we win people we glorify the name of Christ and Paul is saying here I'm bringing profit to the gospel I am glorifying Christ I'm exalting the gospel as people are one to him so the Christian ought to be about winning souls, about saving people from wrath, about giving them the greatest advantage they can have, eternal life and an interest in Christ, about bringing glory to the name of Christ, about showing how profitable and productive and wonderful the gospel is. Next, Paul shows us the way to winning souls. The way to winning souls is to lay down freedoms and to enter into the lives of the hearers. And again, look, we're still at verse 19. We'll move along a little faster later. But uh, the gist is uh, again, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. His purpose to win the more. But what has he done to win? He's made himself a servant to all. Okay. Now let's note a couple points here. First of all, Paul begins 19 and says I'm free. In what sense is, is Paul free? He's true free in a broad sense and Paul is also free in a specific sense. Broadly Paul is free from, first of all, the law, right? He'd long ago given up circumcision, right? He writes that in the same book that circumcision is nothing. He'd given up food laws. He'd given up special observances and Jewish feasts. Um, All all those things. He said, none of those things impact relationship to God, and he he was free of them. And if you recall in the book of Galatians, it even records that he rebuked Peter for observing food laws. Remember, he said, Peter, you, you were eating with the Gentiles, and now you're going back to these Jewish food laws, and he rebuked him for it. So Paul broadly was free from the law. Also, he was free from the opinions and judgments of men. In the same book, he writes, the one who examines me is the Lord. He said, hey, I stand before the Lord, and that's the person I answer to in his word. I don't answer to what people think of me. He also was free from cultural allegiances. Okay, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female you all one in Christ. Paul's saying, hey, you know what? I am free. I don't have all these allegiances, these ties I used to have. I am free. So those are the three ways that, that Paul is broadly free. He's free from the law. He's free from opinions of men. He's free from cultural allegiances. But also in this context specifically, Paul is free from the Corinthians. If you recall, there was a big effort at Corinth to, to make him, to, to have him submit to patronage. In other words, wealthy people there saying, Hey, Paul, let me pay your bill for you. Let me pay you a certain amount. And, and Paul avoided that because his point was he didn't want to be under obligation to anyone. He wanted to be free to give the gospel out. And so uh, Paul, in that sense, is, is free. It left him without obligations. So free, Paul was free. That's the first point in terms of Paul showing us uh, the way to win souls. And, of course, this freedom then was not Paul's goal it wasn't his purpose or his passion. He's entangled in, he's captivated by the gospel. He wants to win as many people as possible to it. So this led him to becoming a slave to all. Paul became a slave to all. Uh, looking here again at verse 19, he says, I have made myself a servant to all. The idea that he that hasn't even slaving someone is that, that word in the Greek. Uh, he's put someone to put themselves into bondage or put someone else into bondage. Um, And the the New Testament only uses this word once in terms of literal slavery. This word is always used in terms of figurative slavery in the New Testament. And Paul, of course, he acts differently as a slave than than he would in his freedom. And so our question might be, in what sense is Paul a slave to his hearers? What does this slavery look like? And I'll give you a clue. Martin Luther said, Martin Luther in his work called Concerning Christian Liberty said, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all, and subject to none. Then he said, a Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all, and subject to everyone. And we'll we'll, we'll go through that. So Paul gives us four examples in this passage as to this kind of slavery. What is this kind of slavery like? What's What's an example of it? What's he talking about here? First, we see that Paul honored the law where doing so would remove a hindrance to the gospel. Paul honored the law, where doing so would remove a hindrance to the gospel. We'll see that he entered into the lives of his hearers, relating to their culture. We'll see that he sensitized himself to their consciences. And finally, that he did so expansively. So let's look at this first point, that he honored the law, where doing so would remove a hindrance to the gospel. Let's look at verse 20 now. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, the not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So the first thing we th- think about here is, what's the distinction between a Jew and those under the law? And frankly, the commentaries kind of waffle, and we're not really sure, but I'll show you. I, I think we it's pretty plain that um, probably the second designation, the Jews, of course, the nationality, the second designation probably includes proselytes and God-fearers. If you recall... Throughout the the ancient world, there are many Gentiles who had adopted the Jewish religion. We have uh, the Roman centurion whose daughter was here where the the, uh, um, elders came to Jesus and said he's been good to our people. And we have Cornelius. And we have many people who are called. So there are really three classes of people in the synagogue. You had Jews. You had proselytes who who had undergone the rite of circumcision, who had completely adopted the Jewish way of life but were not of Jewish nationality. And then you had what are called God-fears. Those are people who, who feared God, who worshipped with the Jews, but who had not completely adopted a Jewish religion. So I suspect that well, what Paul's talking about here, he says we have the Jews, to those that became as, as a Jew, to those under the law. It's a little broader category speaking of these proselytes and God-fears whom you found in most synagogues. Um, so what does Paul mean when he says... To the Jews I became as a Jew, or I became as under the law. We saw, we already talked about this, that when Paul came to Christ, uh, he no longer lives a Jew. He no longer lived under the law. But when in the presence of Jews, Paul kept their feasts and ate their foods. If you recall in the book of Acts, it says he hurried to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost, indicating he was going to celebrate that feast with the Jews. Remember, he circumcised Timothy in Acts 16. Why? Because of the Jews in that area. He performed a Nazarite vow where the elders thought this would add credibility to his ministry among Jewish uh, Christians. So, when it, was, when it would keep away from hindrance to the, to the ongoing of the gospel, Paul would honor the law. And we see this if you look for just a minute to Acts chapter 13, uh, we'll see that Paul, this is uh, where Paul enters the synagogue at uh, a City in Antioch. And uh, if you look there, you don't have to look, but if you want, you can. I'll just kind of walk you through a little bit because it's interesting to see how this principle plays out here in sitting Antioch. Okay. Um, notice um, verse 14. He came to Antioch and Pisidia and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Okay. So he, he sits down and then notice that um, the rulers of the synagogue, after the, the law and the prophets are read, they sent him a message saying, do you have any word for us? So he was invited to speak. Then Paul proclaims Jesus to the multitude, to the, those in the synagogue, even showing the superiority of Jesus to Moses. Um, and uh, and one, thing, one thing I want to point out here, too, is interesting. Notice he says in verse 16, Men of Israel and you who fear God. There's that distinction. You see what I'm saying? You've got the, you know, under, to the Jews, that's the men of Israel. And those who fear God, you're living under the law, but you're not of Jewish nationality. That's where, I, that's where I think that kind of confirms worth, and you'll see that is also further on in this chapter. But the point is, is, um, and then of course the next Sunday, almost the whole city was gathered. Again, uh, Paul and Barnabas begin to open up Christ to the to the synagogue, and then of course the Jews become filled filled with jealousy. And Paul and Barnabas at that time say it's necessary for us to leave the Jews. We're going to go. Uh, preach the gospel to the Gentiles and ultimately they're driven out of the district so what do we get from this relative to Paul saying to the Jews I became as a Jew to those under the laws under the law well notice Paul was welcomed in the synagogue he sat down he participated in the worship there it was not offensive no one took offense at him okay Um, it was jealousy of the Jews and offense at the gospel that drove him out okay notice too though that Paul pulls no punches Paul preaches Christ there He doesn't water down his message at all. He says, Christ is superior to Moses. He says, hey, you know, he even warns them. He gives them a stern warning. You know, if you don't listen, the gospel is going to be taken somewhere else, he says in this chapter as you look through it. So Paul uh, proclaims the gospel. And then at the end, he even says to to the Jews, we're turning somewhere else. So it's very interesting. This illustrates well when Paul says, I'm under the law, he's respectful. He attends synagogue. He does not disrupt their service. In fact, he's so winsome that he actually is invited to come. The whole city gathers. On the other hand, when it comes to the truth, when it comes to the gospel, there was no compromise there. He preached it, and the chips fell where they may. Um, so, again, one thing we can see in terms of the slavery that Paul entered into, he honored the law. We're doing so to remove a hindrance to the gospel. Also, we see from verse 21 that Paul entered into the lives of his hearers relating to their culture, Okay. Verse 22. I'm sorry, 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Okay? So what's going on here? Here's, this is actually, in the Greek, it's just a mirror image of the last half of verse 20. Almost the exact opposite. Paul says he's without the law. What does that mean? Well, that it could mean, that word is sometimes used, of lawless behavior. That is to say, in 1 Timothy, you'll see that, that the law was given for the lawless. But here, it really refers more to the Jewish law. He's, he's contrasting between those who live under the law and those who don't. And so we're really talking more, much more about uh, status here than behavior. And Paul is saying, he made himself as without law to them. What does this have an idea? Well, Paul was a Jewish boy... Uh, probably he ate pork and shrimp, with the Gentiles. Um, he, in, in chapter ten, verse twenty-seven, he says he ate whatever was put before him, without asking questions for conscience' sake. So Paul's saying, hey, you know what? Whatever I'm, I'm, I'm served. I'm going to eat. Okay. Uh, we see that Paul reasoned with the Greeks in Athens, didn't use the law, but general revelation. Remember in Athens, uh, Acts seventeen. Paul says he proclaims God to them, the God who made you, who determined all the boundaries, and he's appointed a time where he's going to judge the world. But in that sermon, it's interesting that Paul, first he quotes from an inscription underneath an altar. So Paul's been going around as a tourist, reading the altar signs. You know, this is Zeus, this is Poseidon, this is whatever. You know, you've got that that going on where Paul's entering into their lives. He's identifying even with our gods in the sense of knowing who they were. And then he quotes in Acts 17, he quotes verbatim, Two Greek poets, both of whom, in the work he quotes, are extolling the virtues of Zeus, believe it or not. But Paul takes the, the, the bad part out, and he uses the truth he has to relate to them in their culture. These, these poets, one was a Cretan poet named Epimenides from about 600 B.C. The other's name was Aratus, who uh, wrote between 315 and 240, or lived between those times. So Paul, you can see he entered into their, their lives uh, and we'll see, as we read this morning, that we, we won't get into this, this this week, but Paul knew about the Olympic Games. He knew about boxers. He knew about running. He knew, entered into their, their culture, didn't he? Okay? So he, he really oriented himself and accommodated his message by the knowledge and assumptions of his listeners. He entered into their lives. Now I'm going to take a little excursion, as I'm prone to do, to, enter, to just do a couple teaching issues here that I want to deal with before we move on to this passage. Two things. I want to look at the meaning of all in verse 19 and 22. Notice um, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. And also in verse uh, 22, he says, I become all things to all people. I just want to point out, Paul here has, has described sorts of people. He's saying all sorts of people. Obviously, Paul didn't know every person on the globe. But he dealt with saying, I can deal well with all sorts of people. All this is an example where all in the scriptures doesn't mean all inclusive, every single soul. He's dealing with sorts of people. So, and the other thing that I wanted to contrast here, by way of our first teaching point, is in verse 19 he says, um, that I might win the more of them. And this really says, this has the idea of the rest, or the others. Out of all sorts of men, there were certain ones Christ has called. There's a people to be one. Paul says, I want to go win the rest of them, I want win them all. I want to bring in a multitude. And of course we know that Jesus has a great multitude um, without number. No one can count from every nation, tongue, tongue, tribe, and people, doesn't he? So I want to point this out. And We see Isaiah 53 where uh, it's said that many will be accounted righteous because of his works. He'll divide a portion with many. So I want to point out that all, at least in this passage, doesn't always mean all. It can mean all sorts of people. The other issue I want to point out is this issue of, What law are the Christians under? That's something which some of us may struggle with. What law am I under? And um, I'd suggest to you that in entering the lives of our hearers, the Christian remains under the law of Christ. Okay? Now, Paul, of course, again, looking back at verse uh, 20, says that, uh, I'm sorry, 21, says, "...to those outside the law I became as outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ." So this smacks of this thing where Paul's still defending his apostleship. He's still saying, I'm not lawless. I haven't abandoned the law. I'm not running off to riot and, just, and living uh, sensuously and uh, self-indulgently. He's saying, I, I remain, I'm not without the law of God. I remain under, under the law of Christ. So that's, that's one element that's going on here is Paul is still vindicating his um, apostleship. But notice, he says, though, that I am under the law of Christ, are in law to Christ, bound in law to Christ. So notice that in these verses, as we think about what impact does the, does the Mosaic law, does the Old Testament law have upon us, this, this passage helps us. Why is that? Because Paul keeps distinguishing the law, the Mosaic law, with obeying the ethical imperatives of Christ. Okay? In other words, he says, there's those who are, who are without law and those who are under the law. And then he says, but I'm under, I'm under a new ethical imperative. I'm under the law of Christ. Um, and so what I would suggest to you is, is if you struggle with what are the impact of the Ten Commandments, so what's the impact of the Old Testament on my life, I would suggest that what Paul's suggesting here is that the ethics of the Christian, the Christian is bound to the law of Christ, and that the Scriptures are plain that there's a, a the law of love is what governs us in this age as opposed to the law of Moses. And I'll get back to the... the I'm not saying we throw out the law of Moses altogether, but I am suggesting that that that's what governs us is the law of Christ. There's a new covenant in which the law is written on our hearts, right? Okay? And this is evident from many passages. What does Jesus say at the end of Matthew? He says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. He doesn't say, teaching them to observe all things whatever Moses commanded you. He says, all things that I have commanded you, right? You look in John 12. Jesus says, the one who does not who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Not Moses' words, not the Ten Commandments, but the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day, Jesus says. Romans, of course, refers to the law of the spirit of life or the law of love. 1 Corinthians 7.19, the same book, talks about the commandments of God and that's not circumcision. Here we have this idea of being under the law of Christ. Galatians 5.18 he says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And then 6.2 says, so fulfill the law of Christ. So this is sense. I just want to bring home to us. This. this is an issue, maybe I am the know ever struggle with this, but wondering what, what is the impact of the Old Testament upon my life? And it's clear that in this age, the age we live in now, we're in law under the law of Christ, but not under the law of Moses. James 2.8 refers, James, of course, talks about the royal law, or the law of liberty. Second Peter says, the commandment of the Lord and saviors spoken by your apostles. So what about reference to the Old Testament law? What does that impact? Well, first of all, we know that I would note one thing, as I mentioned, this passage and the entire New Testament does not distinguish between moral and ceremonial laws when it deals with the, with the Old Testament. There are um, theologians whom I respect greatly who make this distinction between the moral law and the ceremonial law and the ritual law, but I don't, find it, I don't think we can find that distinction drawn anywhere in the New Testament the law is treated as a whole when Paul does cite the Ten Commandments of the law it's not the basis of his ethical appeal usually it's a secondary authority and it's used prophetically or it's used to support to say the law of love subsumes all the commandments of Moses Okay. Well, the question might well what about the Ten Commandments are they still useful should we still learn them Or all that time I spent as a kid is that wasted of course not it's just not our primary source as Christians when we think about god what are you telling me to do where do i look we look to the words of the commands of christ first we look there and say that's a law that binds us the same god of course who gave us the old testament gave us the new testament so there's a continuity of moral demand there's not there's not a, a distinction between them but now they've been reinterpreted and filled with new meaning uh, by the lord jesus and of course we know his words on the sermon on the mount it has been said or it has been written, but I say to you, and He intensifies and deepens and makes the, the law a much more internal thing. The Ten Commandments state self-evident truths, so they're they're good to be used to say to say to someone, you know, all of us recognize that lying is wrong, bearing false witness, murder is wrong, adultery is wrong. Those are things which are self-evident truths, which the Ten Commandments help us to state. And just one more point, teaching point that occurred to me that may be occurring to you, and that is, um, you know. If the law isn't used, how do people fall under conviction of sin? And I just note that, of course, Paul says it's interesting when Paul preaches both at Athens and also in Lystra, he doesn't bring up the law. What he does is, of course, is he cites the general revelation of God's character and then he proclaims the gospel. And so we know when we read, you know, John 16 says, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. So that sense is the Holy Spirit uses the gospel to convict of sin and to bring all of us and sinners to himself. So that's my second little excursus. One is to say, all does not always mean all. The second is to say, what law are the Christians under? We're under the law of Christ, which Paul uh, sets forth plainly here in chapter 9. Okay, so we said, well, we're going back on track here, folks, back in the passage. So we said, first thing is that Paul uh, kept the law if, it, if, it, uh, if that would keep something from being a hindrance to the gospel. We said that he entered into the lives of his hearers. We looked at what he did with Gentiles. Knew about the games, probably attended the games. As a matter of fact, when Paul was in Corinth, the Isthmian games were held. There were, of course, games held uh, throughout the Greek peninsula, but there were the two most significant ones were the games at Olympus and the games, the Isthmian games, which are at the Corinthian Isthmus. And so those were held every couple of years, and Paul was right there. He spent a couple of years in Corinth and probably attended the games. So you know, Paul entered into the lives of his hearers. He related to their culture. And then we'll see that he also sensitized himself to the consciences of his hearers. So you have this idea of he, he kept the law when that would when to do so would, would remove a hindrance. He entered into the lives of his hearers, and here he sensitized himself to his hearers. Let's look at verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Okay? So, Paul... Again, is getting back to chapter 8 here. If you recall in, in chapter 8, you can maybe turn the page back, but you'll note that the word weak is used there five different times. In verse 7, 9, 11, and 10, 11, and 13, he refers to the weak over and over again. These are the people whose consciences were not strong enough to resist the temptation to idolatry when they ate at the temple. He refers to the weak over and over again. Um, so when he says, therefore, that to the weak I became weak... I think in the context, it's pretty plain that he's talking about those people who are professing Christians, brothers and sisters in the churches he ministered to, who were weak. However, notice, Paul does talk about winning them, doesn't he? Which we thought, but we said, hey, doesn't that have to do with um, bringing someone to Christ? Well, two things I think I still think it's consistent. That is to say, notice, winning is a broader word than save. Winning has the advantaging of profiting. Okay, so that's one sense that Even though these people may have been Christians or professing Christians, Paul says, "I became like them in order that I can advantage them, I can profit them, I can help them along in their spiritual life." But also, it's significant that Paul says in verse in chapter eight, um, verse eleven, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. That's the word for perishing. That's like John three sixteen, you know that they shall not perish. But have everlasting life. That's the word there. So Paul is saying this is a serious thing, and he's saying, you know, this winning idea has the idea of assuring their salvation, of of, uh, making sure that they uh, continue on in grace and come all the way to heaven. It's interesting, this word win is also used in Matthew 18, 15. Uh, Most of us are familiar with that. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained or one your brother. So there's another example of winning being used in a Christian church context. But notice Paul is serious about the consequence of violating a weaker brother to his ruin. Okay? Winning the weak may be the same as, as assuring a salvation. The point of this is though that Paul condescends to these weaker brothers and sisters as if he too were weak. He doesn't judge them he denies himself for their weakness and their prejudices. He avoids offending them. He enters into their difficulties, all that he may gain their souls. So that's another thing we can see. When Paul said, Become a slave to all, not only does he, he deal with the law, he enters into the, the lives of the heathen, of the, heathen or the Gentiles who are without law, and even to the weak brothers, he becomes weak. He enslaves himself, he bends himself that, in many ways to others. Then Paul comes to this summary verse in verse. Uh, 22b. He says, um, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. One more gleaning then, in terms of how this works out that Paul says, I've made myself a slave. What does this mean? Paul did so expansively. It covers everything, doesn't it? All, all, all. It's just this, this verse just stares you in the face and says, Is there any area of life that's not covered? Any sort of men to which I don't try to accommodate myself? to remove any offense to the gospel? Is there any means I don't resort to to try to win them? Every avenue. Paul so prizes and reveres the gospel as the saving power of God that it puts all other distractions, distinctions in their place. They just don't matter to Paul. His issue is, I'm all about, I'm all in for the gospel. His choices are not what he says, I've been made a slave. My choices aren't my own. My preferences aren't my own. I suspect Paul probably... You know, I've thought about—I uh, don't know how many of you have been to Scotland, but you know they serve blood sausage or something like that, which I've never really relished much. But i thought about Paul sitting down and having something like that, or you know these foods that, as a, as a, you know, we we grow up all with certain foods which we enjoy, and then you can see this plate being put in front of you and saying, "Hey, this is what this is what we eat here." Paul, Did Paul turn up his nose at it? No. I, I, a personal illustration: One time we went to a, a, a uh, African village where Nunu was from, and uh, they. You know, they served up this dish of this futu, with this white, with this clear liquid over it. it looked like kind of like a piece of, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe cartilage. <laughs> it's kind of like, Lord, okay, bless this, you know, and eat it fast. <laughs> so I've had. So anyway, but the, but the point is, is you know, we have to accommodate ourselves to every culture. I didn't want to offend anybody. And Paul says he's going to accommodate himself to every social setting to win as many as possible. He orients himself as to how his actions will lead to the salvation of souls. It's interesting to notice how Paul's behavior with respect to the Jews and the Gentiles didn't differ much. It was his motivation was different. The Jews are living under the law as means of salvation. Paul is doing it out of love that he might share the gospel. And so his actions even though those attacking Paul may have said, "Oh Paul, you're inconsistent." His actions had really had a deeper, more basic integrity that is the gospel is my bottom line. That's my rock. That's my foundation. That's my, the standard by which I measure all I do. Well, ultimately, there are present here two sets of folks. There are those of, here, of us here who have already won, been won to the gospel, and those, and, and the, the command to us is to win others. There are also those here in need of winning. and Let me first address those who have never been won. And I would ask you, do you know your plight? There's coming a day on which the opportunity to gain heaven will be lost. There'll be no more soul winning. No opportunity to find salvation and freedom from God's wrath. And to you, If you've never been one to the gospel, you've never been advantaged to the gospel, you've never had an interest in Christ, to you we offer the gospel, this amazing news that Christ died for sinners. If you come to him, he'll make you one of his own. He'll advantage you, he'll bring you and give you an interest in heaven. You can have a gain or profit that's beyond any earthly profit. You have only to turn from your sin, you're trusting in yourself, your own leadership. And rest all your confidence, all your future, all your hopes, all your affections on Jesus. He'll free you from your sins. But he, by his death, took the wrath of God for his own. And you can be his own. So if you're in that camp where you've never profited, you've never had your soul won to Christ, today is the day in which you may change your camp, in which your future can be changed from one of who will be perishing to one to help those who are perishing to becoming one who wins others to Christ. To those of us who are in the other camp, I think we've established that winning people is to save them from God's wrath and to bring them incalculable advantage, to bring profit and glory to the name of Christ to our our beloved Savior. So first I'd ask, do we really believe that people are bound for the wrath of God? Do we believe that they really can be won to heaven If these truths seize our hearts, we will win souls. Spurgeon wrote to young ministers. and It's a little bit of a long quote, but I think you'll enjoy it because Spurgeon always speaks in such a a, uh, down-home way. He says, there are numbers of people who cannot be reached by the pastor. You must try to get some Christian workers who will buttonhole people. You know what I mean. It's pretty close work when you get a hold of a friend by a lock of his hair or by his coat button. Absalom did not find it easy to get away when he was caught by the oak by the hair of his head. So try to get to close quarters with sinners. Talk gently to them. <laughs> Sorry, till you've whispered them into the King of heaven, till you've told them into their ears the blessed story that will bring peace and joy to the heart. We want in the church of Christ a band of well-trained sharpshooters who will pick the people out individually and be always on the watch for all who come into the place not annoying them but making sure they do not go away without having had a personal warning a personal invitation and a personal exhortation to come to Christ we want to train all our people for this service so as to make salvation armies out of them every man, woman and child who is in our churches should be set at work for the Lord so how about you and me? can we be soul winners? Eternity is at stake. Immeasurable suffering or immeasurable joy. All the glory of the Lamb. Finally, we might ask, what are the implications of these verses for us? How do we take this entering into the lives of those whom we're trying to win? First, we might ask ourselves, are we free? How is our freedom compared to Paul's freedom? Uh, He's free from the law, cultural obligations, free from men's opinions, free from other obligations. Some of us say, well, I've got children. I've got a wife or husband or whatever, okay? So, uh, but we might ask that's true. We have some, all of us have some obligations Paul may not have had. But you might ask yourself, what in my life keeps me from accommodating myself to others that they may be one? What is there that says, that might be saying, hey, you know what? It's in the way. I would like to go help that person. I'd like to go enter into their life, but I'm too busy with this. Or this prejudice keeps me from it. Or this behavior keeps us apart. Is our confidence, our prizing of the gospel high so that we subordinate, we count as nothing, all other earthly distinctions and values? That's what Paul's calling. He says, you know, I do all things for the gospel. We'll see you next time I preach in a couple years. <laughs> uh, what, uh, so we have to be careful. It isn't our attitude to say, I want to stay away from responsibilities. I don't want obligations. How are we behaving among those who do not know Christ. Are we willing to put aside our personal preferences? Can we engage or forego things that that prove a hindrance? And and again, I think it's interesting. Paul knew the game, so he's saying maybe this means you go to a football game or you go to whatever you might want to do to enter into the lives of those around us. Um, It's interesting, John Piper spoke in opening this passage up of a fruitless separation on the one hand and an unprincipled expediency on the other. He said, you're no use if you're on the, on the one hand. You know, I say, hey, you know what? I want to get to know those people. I'm just going to go keep going to bars every night, and I'm out here. On the other hand, we can be so holy, so apart, that it's fruitless. We never get to enter engage, engage in people. He suggested two tests. So I'll just pass on. Because I thought these were very wise. He says, are you, as, as we do this, as we enter into the lives of others, are we becoming more worldly-minded, and they are becoming spiritually-minded? That's one question to ask. Are, are we becoming more worldly-minded than they're becoming spiritual minded um, And then is our, is our passion for winning them growing or is it shrinking as we become all things to people? That's kind of another question we could ask. But for most of us, including myself, probably we can take more steps toward getting engaged than less, right? We need to say, hey, what, what hinders me? What's out there? Do we know or care what others are sensitive to so we can shape our lives so as not to violate their consciences? We see that in Paul saying, to the weak I became as weak. Is that something we're sensitive to? We talk to people enough to know what they're back, what they're thinking. And I leave you with this promise. Psalm 126, 6 says, He who goes out weeping, I guess I fit that sometimes, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let me read that again. He goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bring his sheaves with him. And so I'd say, can you be a soul winner? Can you be a sower? Rest in this promise, you'll come home with joy, bringing your sheaves with you. Let's pray. Lord, for most of us, this is a lot. And we would pray that you would stir us with the value of the gospel, that you would make us to believe all your word says. We thank you for giving us this revelation of what is. Not what we perceive, but what is and what is to come. Thank you for the glory of your son who lived and died and rose again and even lives today is still in the business of saving people. Make us to be bent, inclined, entangled with the gospel that we would bend our lives and our being and our all that we would do to enter into the lives of those around us that we might win them to their salvation, to their advantage. So we uh, thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name.